Welcome back, listeners. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the EcoCiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and equitable world. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the work that we are doing by making a donation at ecociv.org. Today, Jeremy Fackenthal talks with Catherine Keller, who is professor of constructive theology at the Theological School of Drew University. Keller is a leading progressive theologian and process philosopher whose work attends to matters of social and ecological justice, postmodern philosophy, and feminist theology. She is the author of numerous books, including Face of the Deep, A Theology of Becoming, and Cloud of the Impossible, Negative Theology and Planetary Entanglement. In this episode, Jeremy talks with Catherine about her most recent book, Political Theology of the Earth, Our Planetary Emergency and the Struggle for a New Public, which critically engages the works of Carl Schmitt, Alfred North Whitehead, William Connolly, Donna Haraway, and many others to develop a constructive political theology for the Anthropocene. Catherine talks about the relevance of political theology for the present ecological emergency, the ongoing struggle for an eco-political common good, the complex relationship between theory and practice, and the importance of distinguishing hope from optimism. And now, here's Catherine and Jeremy. I am here today with Catherine Keller, who is Professor of Constructive Theology at Drew Theological School. Um, Catherine has been uh, a longtime friend and thought partner of many of us and happens to be in Claremont this week. Um, So we grabbed her for an interview about her most recent book, Political Theology of the Earth, Our Planetary Emergence and the Struggle for a New Public. Catherine, first, uh, let me just say that that this book pairs really well with our recent uh, read and podcast interview of Yael Dennis. So we're diving back into uh, Schmidt and sovereignty mm-hmm. and um, state of exception questions again mm-hmm. um, with this, and then going a bit further to talk about um, planetary politics and democratic agonism, which um, we'll draw out in a few minutes. So thank you for being here. I'm delighted to be here, and of course, being here is being close to the source for me of, of any re- any reflection that I can be part of about the Earth and indeed about political theology. <laughs> can you first just tell us why you wrote this book and, and why you wrote this book now? Well, yes, Jeremy, now is the question and uh, <laughs> provides the context. Of course, the now is, uh, is a flexible time and it seems like this book was written in response to the emergency triggered by the 2016 election but in fact I had already uh, gotten a draft together because I was doing this originally in the form of three lectures uh, for the Taylor lectures at at Yale Divinity School so I'm just saying, I'd already gotten a sense that I needed to work on a political theology mm. as a way of, of grappling with a sense of, of planetary uh, crisis uh, that was very much tuned to the planet uh, as such, as our uh, home, and as the place that we know is now uh, for our long-term habitation under threat by our long-term habits. Uh, And so already I was moving in pretty much this direction, but I needed to do quite a lot of rewriting after the election. Uh, It was sad to have to include quotes of the present president. Uh, But really I came to a a sense of of a sort of, of, of triple uh, emergency uh, that I hope to help morph into a triple site of emergence, a kind of triune apocalypse that is, of course, of climate change, uh, which is so much in our immediate future, uh, and of of the 
political condition, which is so much in our face, and at the same time of of theology and of its um, its religious institutional base, with the ongoing crises of 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 Christendom, uh, of my denomination and that of Claremont's uh, and mm-hmm. of my school Druze, the United Methodists have gone into a deep self destructive crisis just in the last couple of months. So uh, there's a triple sense of threat, but I always, when meditating on the apocalypse, need to remind myself and anyone listening of the, the meaning of the word, which is not to close down history. It's not the end of time. It's not closure, it's disclosure, it's revelation, it's an opening up of possibilities under extremely dire circumstances. Uh, so I think that's where we are there. It's not about the end of the world. Apocalypse is not about the end of the world. There's no end of the world anywhere in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are great catastrophes, uh, natural and historical, uh, and there are prophetic warnings of more <laughs> to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, at the same time, always uh, a radical hope mm-hmm. for a fresh start. So, yeah, I'm hoping in this moment to just be one of of a multitude of of voices trying to help us galvanize our resources spiritually, mentally, Mm -hmm. and very practically. Picking up on that, you you draw on uh, both the writings of Paul and on um, some of the the recent um, postmodern philosophical return to Paul can you describe how that is is significant for you and how it's significant for you as a process relational theologian and thinker? Yes, it's an odd significance. Odd in the way that my occasionally now looping back to John of Potmos and his <laughs> misogynist <laughs> grim apocalypse is like looping back to Paul in spite of, of, of clearly uh, sexist and heterosexist passages that have been used for, for much harm. Uh, but I've been convinced less by, uh, by the scholarship of biblical scholars, which I tend to take with a grain of salt because they might be trying to apologize for him, uh, and more from these philosophers who've become enraptured with Paul, even though these philosophers are basically continental atheists, uh, Agamben, Badiou, Zizek, all have books on Paul. And what's very interesting is that their books on Paul go hand in hand with the books that each of them have written on political theology. Again, not as theologians. And this is what's interested me in political theology. It's this, it's this uh, interdisciplinary possibility of a conversation. Uh, so I was hooked into a new fascination with Paul that I really wouldn't have expected, mm-hmm. and, and particularly through Agamben's uh, discussion of First Corinthians uh, seven, uh, and this is where we hear from uh, Paul uh, in, in the normal translation uh, that the time that remains is short. But what Agamben points out is that the word for short is much, much more complicated and interesting than what that monosyllable carries. It's sunestalmenos, which actually means contracted or ingathered or compressed or complicated. So this completely hooked me back in. So it's not that we're running out of time, mm-hmm. although of course we might be in a certain sense, but that's not the core of the message. Uh, and if, if that were Paul's message, it would just be evidence of how wrong he was expecting mm-hmm. the world to end uh, a couple thousand years ago, more or less. No, it's, it's, it's precisely that this, uh, this sunestalmenos of time, this contraction of time, the sense that time is contracted, uh, is about 
a great um, in-gathering of the density of our history and of what's possible to us. So there is intensity in it, there is risk, there is danger, uh, and there is great possibility. And what's also interesting is that he doesn't use the word chronos for the time that is short, it's kairos. And you don't have to be a follower of Paul Tillich to know that Paul's kairos is of deep metaphysical significance. I, of course, link the kairos, which is, again, a a moment of the fullness of time. It's not just a fleeting moment, a moment of the fullness of time, but of, of crisis, but also of possibility. I link it to Whitehead's sense of any moment of time, any moment of becoming, actually being a contraction of all of history, of Mm -hmm. all of the universe. Mm -hmm. So you see where this begins to cohere with my process theology, that there's something about the moment uh, uh, that we are in uh, that Paul is also uh, negotiating in his moment. He's not talking about one single moment in time, but the moment in which uh, we as followers of the Messiah might uh, find ourselves if we open our eyes together. We find ourselves often in such a moment and in some unique way, and we are in a unique way, in, in a moment of great contraction where we're becoming aware of, of what uh, danger uh, our habitable uh, oikos, our home, <laughs> Uh, on the planet is, uh, and and yet also we are becoming aware of of us as a planetary population, and new media does at least serve that that purpose mm-hmm. of of contracting our awareness of what's going on, what's going on everywhere. Uh, so I I wanted I wanted. Paul to be part of this political theology, which you can also therefore call a, a political theology. <laughs> I actually did laugh out loud the first time you used that phrase in the book. <laughs> it was quite delightful. I'm sure I haven't been the first to think of it, but I was the first to be smart alecky enough to use it. Yeah. And it, it seems that connected with this this Kairos moment or uh, as Benjamin calls it, the yet site or the now time, is also Schmidt's notion of the state of exception or what becomes the state of emergency in some of Benjamin's writings. Can you uh, describe briefly, just for our listeners' sake, how Schmidt understands sovereignty and what the state of exception means for him, and then perhaps why that can be troubling in the present? Yes, really important question, Jeremy. And I'm glad that many of your listeners will have already heard uh, Yael Shelley Dennis reflecting on political mm-hmm. theology, her politi- political theology of food, and therefore have gotten some exposure to this problematic return to the 1920s text of Carl Schmitt called Political Theology. And it, it opens with the with the the uh, claim that sovereign is he who decides in the exception. Sovereign is he who decides in, or it can be translated on, the exception. So Schmidt was, of course, appealing to the uh, the power that the sovereign ruler, if if he is truly sovereign, has to declare a state of emergency, to decide if it is one or isn't, and to declare it, which means that law is suspended. So the sovereign lawmaker is also the one who can suspend the laws uh, and, and, and in that way transcend law. Uh, and of course, this is partly why Schmidt was uh, useful to uh, his Führer, uh, who in 1933 declared a state of emergency that was then permanent. Uh, So that state of exception or state of emergency is the same term in German, then uh, is is a way of of getting at uh, a crisis. And I don't 
want to dispute that there are states of emergency that might need to be declared. And David Griffin has suggested that the president of the United States, he was writing before we had this one, uh, should declare a a state of of climate emergency. And I I think that's a discussion worth having. but this notion of power is very dangerous because it, it is the excuse to uh, suspend uh, the constitutional rules that govern a democracy and that maintain uh, checks and balances on power. Uh, naturally, we're already in a, a state of emergency, though it's become a very strange self-contradicting one uh, in, our, in our present context. Uh, it, and... Uh, early in this millennium, a state of emergency was actually in effect uh, in relation to the Iraq war that in many ways has never uh, uh, been ended. That's something Agamben also wrote about uh, and was deeply worried about the United States role, um, and that's under under Bush too. Uh, so this notion of a sovereign exception uh, is a, an important uh, clue as to a way that power uh, can be uh, abused with an aura of legitimacy, you know, serving uh, the nation uh, in an emergency. Uh, And this is what pumps up then uh, a dictatorial kind of power or a more total uh, power So it seems to me that as we face into emergencies of various kinds, uh, and and certainly uh, we're just going to keep seeing uh, spirals of of social uh, and and, uh, ecological emergency developing as the the waters rise and as the droughts persist and as the wild fires come on here in this state Mm -hmm. uh, year after year worse and worse so they're going to be emergencies can't avoid that term Um, and so it seems to me crucial to think of other strategies than the state of emergency and its kind of sovereign exceptionalism as a way of getting at it. So instead of seeing climate emergency as a big exception, we should see it as, in fact, an exemplification of patterns that have been in play uh, for the 500 years of modernity and of our, compi- our pumping of, of, of fossil fuels uh, into the atmosphere, starting with the coal revolution uh, in England. Uh, and that pumping, and you can date the Anthropocene to then, or mm-hmm. or you can date it to the 1950s when we reach a whole new level of of the uh, extra extractivism that's poisoning uh, and warming our atmosphere. When, whenever you date it from, it's a long process that the present emergency is exemplifying, and it's going into new levels and qualitative differences, but it's important not to see it just as an exception or else mm-hmm. we're not diagnosing properly. Mm-hmm. So that's why then I'm proposing instead of a, 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 instead of a, a sovereign state of exception, a collective uh, state of inception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. And you use a couple of phrases to... Um, to articulate that inception, one of them is um, the undercommons, and and then you also describe um, the notion of democratic agonism. Can you uh, walk us through what each of those mean, and how uh, each term is helpful for uh, building this sort of collective uh, amongst and amidst our differences? Yes. Well, starting with the undercommons, which is a phrase that is the name of an amazing book uh, by Fred Moten and William Harney. And and what Moten and Harney are getting at in the undercommons uh, is a sense of of black uh, urgency 
indeed of black uh, emergency. Uh, and they're talking of an undercommons uh, rather than uh, something that we can discuss as in terms of a commonwealth where things are in common because they're speaking for a minority who don't seem to count uh, to our commonwealth's understanding of uh, the common good. Nonetheless, I, as a pupil of John Cobb, <laughs> and one very influenced by his for the common good, want to hold out for an understanding of the political as the struggle for a common good. But if that good is going to be truly a common good, one for all citizens in common, one for all human beings ultimately to hold in common, and if we're real white idiots, one for all creatures ultimately to share in common in our endlessly diverse ways. If we're going to have that radical sense of an eco-political common good as what guides our political struggle together, then we have to be faithful to the undercommons. So I want now always to be to be echoing Fred Moten when when I appeal to a common good, you know, that it has to be a common good that keeps faith, uh, that checks in uh, with the undercommons, though understanding that we can't appropriate uh, that, that language mm-hmm. and, and that subject location mm-hmm. either in some big wide uh, and largely mm-hmm. white we. Right. So... Uh, that's the sense of, of, of the commons uh, with its with its closely shadowing um, uh, truth speaking under commons um, as the site of a collective inception rather than the sovereign exception which accepts itself from the commons as it's the mm-hmm. uncommon that accepts itself. Oh, and the etymology of exception is to take out. (laughs) So it takes itself out of the commons and, of course, takes out a lot of the commoners, (laughs) shoves them into the... the the undercommons. Another concept that comes out early in the book and then sort of stays with us through the remainder is Chantal Mouffe's notion of democratic agonism. And you write that this agonism is not enmity, but struggle, uh, and that it's important to stay with that struggle. Can you draw out what you mean by democratic agonism and then how that plays a role in this political theology? Yes, I find it a very illumining idea, uh, this contrasting of a democratic agonism to uh, a, a, a public antagonism. Uh, and more than Chantal Mouffe, I'm really taking it actually uh, from William Connolly, who speaks of a respectful agonism, again, over and against a politics of antagonism. And with Mouffe, the agonism is directly juxtaposed to Carl Schmitt, who defines the political in terms of friendship, uh, that is the friendship of a shared unified public. And how does it unify itself? By designating a common enemy. So for Schmidt, there is no politics and there is no unity without the enemy. So you can see how uh, the Jews were really important to him and his his crowd mm-hmm. uh, because they helped to galvanize a, a new uh, Aryan unity. Yeah. Uh, but of course, we all know the advantage of having a common enemy. It always worked well in my family, which was full of internal divisions and... Mm-hmm antagonisms, but if we could unify against someone else, you know, I learned that trick very early, and here I am trying to create some unity with with my readers and listeners against, like, Carl Schmidt. Yeah. So, it's not that I think we, we, we have an easy pair of alternatives mm-hmm. here, but I think we have a good normative 
idea, if not ideal, in the agonism, which is a word that means struggle, and you hear in the agon, which in the Greek means struggle, and is also the root for mm-hmm. agony. So mm-hmm. this isn't something nicey-nice, harmonious and easy, but agonism isn't defined in an over and against uh, with an enemy. It might be an agon with a true declared enemy, of course. Uh, even if we believe in loving thine enemy, we're not denying that we have enemies. Mm-hmm. We might hope to transform the relationship of enmity into another kind of difference. But the enemy might stay an enemy and crucify us. Uh, that's just realistic. But agonism doesn't require an enemy. It can also be the struggle with, the struggle Mm -hmm. with each other Mm -hmm. to reach new understandings, the struggle with one another to build a vital coalition uh, so that our multiple uh, identities don't lock into single issue politics and and just let ourselves then be divided and conquered uh, by the real enemies. Uh, So it's important that we go on struggling with each other around what's most important at this moment in history. Is it... uh, is it climate change, as I sometimes am saying, or is it that black lives matter, or is it the return of toxic masculinity, or is it that, you know, given where the UMC is, is it that queer lives matter? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have issues that become emergencies and demand burning focus and attention. Uh, But an agonism would say, let's not go antagonistic Mm -hmm. around around what is the most important issue. Let's try to keep struggling with each other uh, so that we can build a strong enough uh, coalition across the the democratic spectrum. Mm And I think agonism will serve us far better uh, than antagonism in that, in that struggle. From that, I want to ask you about hope. Because it, it seems that um, hope for you in this book is tied to that agonism. And that hope is not an escape from the struggle, but um, perhaps even diving further into the struggle or remaining with the struggle. You talk about hope as the embrace of possibility and and staying with the trouble for more than just a moment. And you say that hope cannot be confused with optimism. We often ask people, our guests on our podcast, um, where they see hope. But I want to ask that question differently for you. So how how does a political theology include hope in this sort of realistic manner, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hope is a, a very fragile uh, concept right now, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, with even a theologian writing a book called The Embrace of Hopelessness, uh, as, yeah. as though that's the yeah. only... Uh, Miguel uh, de Torres wrote that. Yeah. And it's a, an important argument to make, and I want to agonistically struggle with Mm it. I am tuned to a lot of thinkers, authors who have given up on a concept of hope and propose alternatives. Uh, Don Haraway, staying with the trouble, thinks Mm -hmm. that staying with the trouble is a way of, of staying vibrantly and materially engaged uh, in in the present staying with the troubles now and relinquishes a concept of hope because of its 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 future mm-hmm. reference so uh, again I learned so much uh, from her and from many thinkers who have dumped hope but uh, it is my conviction uh, that hope is a more important concept uh, than what intellectuals uh, think we can play with, Mm. uh, and that to give up on hope is to give up on the future referent of our current struggles. It's to give up on the sense that there's something to struggle for beyond the immediate moment. 
But of course, I have an understanding of the the immediate moment that's Whiteheadian and that believes that the future is already in play in the mm-hmm. present, not mm-hmm. as predictable. It's not predictable, not as somehow already there. No, but as possibility, it's being shaped right here now. So it's not something abstract and distant. It's there, interacting with the past, which is also mm-hmm. there. So for me, the Kairos moment of the, the jetzt site, the now moment, is vibrantly engaging what's possible. And what's possible can only become actual in a future. It might be a, a very near future, or it might be a more distant one. But, but hope is the dimension of struggle in time that references that future. Mm. Uh, so I don't think we can afford to let it go. What I think we have to do uh, is continuously distinguish between optimism and hope. So I just over and over repeat that my, my one favorite quote from Karl Barth, <laughs> really my only, is that Christians are not optimistic or pessimistic. We are hopeful. Uh, that works for mm-hmm. me. Uh, mm-hmm. Hope is a rigorous uh, prophetic concept. It really only arises in the Hebrew prophetic mm-hmm. tradition as a significant ethical value. doesn't arise anywhere else uh, around the planet yeah. as a primary uh, value. And I, I think we need it, but it's then it's a hard hope because it isn't a guarantee. There might even be some sense of divine promise, but these promises require our collaboration, <laughs> their covenants. They mm-hmm. require that we fulfill our part in the covenant. Uh, we need to do our bit to realize these divinely proffered possibilities, these lures. Uh, and and we seem as a species, uh, and especially as the privileged white minority uh, of the species to be undoing (laughs) our part rather than doing our part in Mm -hmm. in fulfilling the covenant and making making hope realizable but we can't Mm -hmm. erase hope therefore we have to struggle harder so i love i love the title of joseph winter's book hope draped in black Mm -hmm. that that means a lot to me that's a hope that is in some way shadowed even shrouded by immense historical loss Mm -hmm. and he's thinking of of massive enslavement and genocide of of africans and of African Americans and all that has been suffered uh, racially, the whatever gains come about, uh, the grief work isn't then done, mm-hmm. and that's the kind of that's the kind of hope you have actually in the biblical prophetic tradition. It's it's full of lament. It's working through great mourning, great loss, great suffering. And therefore, it can glimpse hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, without the mourning, hope isn't hope, it's optimism. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, uh, hope in the dark uh, also is then Rebecca Solnit's mm. phrase. Um, she's a great activist uh, on ecological matters. So it's this, this darkened, this shadowed hope that mm-hmm. I find uh, realistic. You talk about um, sort of the sin of white supremacy and how that has been tied to Christendom and a certain kind of Christianity. And in that discussion, you introduce the idea of failing better. Um, so th- there's not a sense in which we won't continue to fail at certain things <laughs> in the future, but that we can fail better. How for you is that notion of failing better tied to Uh, Deleuze's understanding of repetition with a difference. So repetition with a difference from Gilles Deleuze, uh, from his his great work in in the late 60s, repetition and, and difference, is actually a point 
where the early influence on him of Whitehead, Mm -hmm. I believe, bleeds through. Uh, And he references Whitehead later in that book. (laughs) He's one of the only continental philosophers who did. Uh, And so what he's thinking about is about how novelty uh, is radical it's what I want to call the inception. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a great philosopher of, of the new and the different, but it's not a dissociated difference. It's mm-hmm. not a difference out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's out of the past. And, and the past is, is endlessly repeating itself with the kind of inertive force uh, as in Whitehead. Mm-hmm. It's endlessly repeating itself in every moment, but in that moment, there's also always, even at the most microcosmic, trivial little quantum level, uh, some element of, of new possibility for some different twist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for Deleuze, that idea is also cosmological, not just human and not just political, but very political. Uh, so that that the past is always present, contracting in the present, but in that contraction, something novel uh, is possible. Even the sheer fact that it's a repetition means it's not the same. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. repetition. That's mm-hmm. other than what it is uh, repeating. So that's this Whitehead Deleuze idea. And your question's really great. So how does that relate uh, to uh, Jack Haberstam's uh, concept of the queer art of failure? Because mm-hmm. that's where this notion of failing better comes from, the queer art of failure. And what Haberstam is is talking about is how there's something powerful in being wrong and in losing and failing. Uh, but they say that all our failures combined uh, might might be just enough if we really practice them uh, to get beyond winning, even to bring down the winner on, <laughs> on the other side, and and yet and yet. Uh, their concept is that the most we can hope for really is is to fail, to fail better, more knowingly. And, you know, I realized uh, that this concept of failing better is actually coming from Samuel Beckett, mm-hmm. his, 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 last, uh, his last play, which is a wonderful little play called Worstward Ho. <laughs> what a pun that is. Worstward Ho. Talk about U.S. exceptionalism. Yeah. <laughs> And what what Samuel Beckett has his character there mutter towards the end is ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. So that's repetition with a difference and a hard earned struggling difference, but better. (laughs) Uh, I would be remiss if I did not bring out the fact that this is in fact a political theology and so while EcoCiv is not necessarily a faith-based organization we intertwine ourselves with people of faith quite frequently and and our organization is made up of uh, people of faith I wanted to uh, ask you about this notion of the messianic and the way that you draw out the fact that incarnation, um, so God incarnate in the world, underscores the fact that matter matters. At the same time, uh, you draw from Benjamin, who says that, that we have or we carry with us a weak messianic power, and that, that the past has a, a sort of claim on that weak messianic power. I wonder to what uh, degree you would also say that the future has a claim on that weak messianic power. Oh, that's a great and very contracted question. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this concept of weak messianic power from Walter Benjamin has been uh, very important to a whole series of of thinkers Many of them in the in the, in the continental non-theist uh, philosophical mm-hmm. tradition, uh, 
others reflecting on, on Judaism uh, in, in, in deep ways, uh, like uh, Jakob Talbess, who also took Schmidt very seriously mm-hmm. and, and, and very painfully. <laughs> uh, and also with Jack Caputo, thinking through Derrida, really picking up this co- concept of a weak power uh, as a way of thinking about a non-omnipotent God. And, you know, for us who've worked with process theology, the, the resonance with the persuasive but non-coercive divine power is deep. Uh, the resonance with the God who, in, in the name of Tom Ward's new bestseller, mm-hmm. uh, can't, God can't, is the name of the, the So the, the deconstruction of classical omnipotence in process theology leads to a, a place that's very similar, they're not the same as this weak uh, messianic force. I think we don't like to say this is that God's weak. We like to say it's an alternative power, yeah. uh, the yeah. power of persuasion, or I'd, I'd like to say, yes, the, the power of, of love, mm-hmm. uh, that what God can't be is in contradiction to God's self. And if God is love, then then uh, God can't uh, exercise uh, manipulative power. I think Ord and I agree on that one. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, the weak messianic power has particular reference to the Jewish expectation of the Messiah, which some set of Jews thought had already been fulfilled, but only partially because still uh, that Messiah... <laughs> Uh, didn't bring on the messianic age and, and so had to had to still somehow come uh, in the future uh, come again or come for the first time depending on, on your uh, religious community uh, so that that sense of, of messianic hope seems to me to be crucial to any any vibrant concept of hope there's a messianic edge to it, mm-hmm. however fully secularized it is. And with Walter Benjamin, it was uh, radically secularized, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as was his, his Judaism. Uh, so that's, that's part of thinking uh, with uh, the political theology that from the opposite politics comes mm-hmm. out of Schmidt, that, you know, is the argument that all modern political concepts are secularized theology. But so we from the left, he's thinking of omnipotence Mm -hmm. and that how secularized omnipotence yields the sovereign uh, exceptionalist power. But I think we might think about how secularized uh, messianic power or call it potentiality, that secularized messianic hope can then uh, express itself through a new collective planetary <laughs> inception that is secular religious, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that bridges that difference, that operates with wisdom back and forth, and so seeks to materialize its hope in a way that is in cahoots with all of, all of our material shared life uh, which is why with with the physicist and thinker Karen Barad we understand that, mm-hmm. that there's an ethical marrow running through matter itself matter matters uh, and we know that in process theology the in process philosophy that matter is never merely matter uh, and so that the, this mattering uh, that happens uh, in the secularizing of a, of a weak messianic power uh, is, I think, a, a kind of always very fragile realization of hope. But as soon as we use any messianic language, uh, whether we're using it in a secularized way or in a still uh, Jewish or, or Christian theological way, I think we, we need to <laughs> keep faith with that undercommons, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. of J. Cameron Carter's uh, uh, analysis of the uh, <laughs> the messianic white man <laughs> in U.S. politics, mm-hmm. and that's the politics that is is triumphant, very triumphant right now. <laughs> uh, so we always need to distinguish. Uh, 
indeed, indeed uh, not just distinguish from, but oppose to uh, that messianic white man when we want to uh, use any any messianic metaphor worn against mm-hmm. <laughs> the white guy messianism that the, the Christian right has teamed up with the political right and with a bizarre breaking form of neoliberal capitalism uh, uh, to bring us to this particular edge of history. Toward the end of the book, you um, you move into some practical applications, or um, some concrete ways in which perhaps we are uh, at least attempting to fail better. And it, what struck me most about that is that uh, there is a, a way in which you bridge together the theoretical with the practical uh, within this volume. And for EcoCiv, that is certainly something that we consciously consider in our work. So we talk about deepening our idea or our understanding of an ecological civilization, but always combining that with um, practical or on-the-ground work and trying to transform structures and systems. Um, how do you see, either within this volume or, or within the body of your work thus far, this connection between theory and practice. Right. Well, there's nothing more important than that connection. And it's not enough to say, as some academics are want to, that theory (laughs) is practice. Right. (laughs) Well, of course it is. But it it can be a very irresponsible practice Mm -hmm. if it's not thinking rather consistently and mindfully about about how to move into material practices that actually influence vast networks of, mm-hmm. of life. You know, but just saying that we want that to happen doesn't make it happen. And, and I think I'm, in my work, often guilty of talking about practice mm-hmm. as though that's already practicing. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I think there's some vicious circles that we get into there. Yet I think there are also a lot of vicious circles that, that activists get into. You're thinking, you just, just do it. Uh, well, if we could just do it, we would have done it already. <laughs> yeah. you know, and so we actually have to be thoughtful in our activism because there's yeah. huge, huge uh, choices to be made all the time because our priorities uh, are going to guide us and our possibilities are limited. Um, but I don't know of better examples right now of the crossing from theory into its practices and the checking of theory by practices than what you all are doing at, at the Process Institute through this work on, on eco-civ. You know, that's why, actually, I, I bring in that work and John Cobb's work and Philip Clayton's mm-hmm. in particular uh, as, as illustrations you know, with the kind of extraordinary effect that uh, process thought has has had in mainland China yeah. <laughs> with those, I think, now what, 30 centers. 36. 36 now, yes. oh my goodness. Every time I mention it, <laughs> there are several yeah. more uh, centers for, for process thought. Uh, and really that means for pursuing the ideal of, of uh, ecological civilization that is is part of, of Chinese self-understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as John Cobb as, has uh, said for many decades now, <laughs> uh, would make a tremendous difference to any degree to which it's actualized, simply mm-hmm. because of, of the size of the population and the, the, the scale of the power and influence uh, and wealth of, of what's involved in the concept of mainland China. And so... That work has, has seemed to me an extraordinary example of, of a theory having practical impact. And the effect here in uh, Southern California of Pando Populus and Ecosiv's involvement in creating that amazing um, web network <laughs> root system <laughs> or is it a branching mm-hmm. system <laughs> anyway the tree is branching <laughs> branching out and, and and that tree which is tens of thousands of trees yeah. uh, is is endlessly uh, 
intermingling and growing in 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 its in its undercommons of mm-hmm. of, of, of roots, but mm-hmm. connecting multiple activist uh, groups and priorities together, and it takes rigorous thought to be doing that. Right. But that's what you're doing here, and I'm only indirectly involved. You know, it, it, my work has often, um, through my decades, uh, been in relation to particularly struggles around uh, gender and then gender and ecology uh, within um, church communities, often Protestant ones, but actually i'm also involved with some some catholic follow through on on the encyclical i'll be doing a keynote lecture at the opening of the laudato si institute in oxford oh, great. next Good. summer very strange Good. to choose a protestant feminist to do <laughs> one of the three keynotes mm-hmm. uh, for that new institute that will be dedicated to ecological follow through so is that practical work well I have to think that that is. Mm-hmm. That's really institutional uh, in a way that's designed to foster more and more uh, church activism yeah. uh, and as much non-church and cultural and secular and interreligious activism as also possible. Um, so I think it's through feminist and many queer forms uh, also of networking, connecting to ecological work that I've I've felt I've been able to uh, be a be a theoretical resource, but a lot of a lot of the activism of one who teaches is actually in in mm. the teaching, because mm-hmm. I'm not just teaching people who become scholars. Yeah. It's a privilege to do some of that as well, but uh, most of the students I teach become ministers of various kinds or activists and uh, and leaders of, of social institutions. So always, I'm afraid I'm just trying to justify, uh, you know, the privilege of writing more books. But I, <laughs> I hope it's it's more than that that yeah. we're up to here. I think it is. Yeah. Thank you. And I would say that your theory and, and body of work contributes to our work and helps us deepen our understanding of integral ecology, of ecological civilization. Uh, and it certainly fuels uh, the work that we do. So. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jeremy. What you're up to is indeed mattering. (laughs) 